Hey. hey. You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name is Amelia. Today we have a super duper awesome guest on the show. We have the amazing Dr. Steph McLennan, who is an Antarctic geoscientist with Geoscience Australia. Welcome to the show, Dr. Steph. Thanks. It's great to be here. Awesome. So hopefully starting with an easy question, what is your job? That is an easy question for sure. My job is an Antarctic geoscientist or an Antarctic geologist, and I look at rocks and landscapes, the ice-free parts of Antarctica. These areas are really small. They tend to be around the coast in really isolated patches, and they're quite vulnerable to human impacts. As an Antarctic geoscientist, I use my knowledge of how landscapes form and evolve, especially in really icy areas, areas around glaciers. I use that to provide information to decision makers and environmental managers about how we can better live and work in Antarctica more sustainably. Fantastic. So you're mostly interested in, yeah, the areas that don't have snow on them. So not so much interested in the stuff that's under like kilometers of ice. Yeah, that's right. So as I mentioned, there are small areas of Antarctica that are permanently snow and ice free and they're almost like little islands of rock surrounded by ice. A lot of these areas are along the coast. The Antarctic Peninsula is a really great example of that where a lot of tourists visit during the year but in East Antarctica where I work there are small islands of rock often um, with stations on them and as people and scientists working there we're competing with wildlife sometimes for essentially real estate and we can also have an impact on that environment with our activities like walking tracks and things like that. Are there walking tracks on Antarctica? Yeah, that's right. If you think of a walking track in Australia, say, um, so I really love bushwalking and hiking, walking tracks can be really easy to spot because we clear away with our feet things like plants and all the leaf litter that that's hanging around. You know, you'll see rocks and stones getting kicked out of the way kind of have the same uh, sort of thing happening in Antarctica with expeditioners and tourists. They're a lot harder to spot, but they still have an impact on the environment. And they also take a really long time to recover. In somewhere like Australia or most parts of the world, we have a lot of liquid water, like rain coming in to wash footprints away. Plants are much more complex uh, and grow a lot better. And so they can take over walking tracks and things like that if we want to rehabilitate areas. We don't have a lot of that in Antarctica. And so we need to be a bit smarter and a bit more strategic with how we manage that. I'm imagining it a little bit closer to the moon where once you've left a footprint, there's not that much to get rid of that footprint. Yeah, totally. It is like a a lunar landscape um, in parts. But it's interesting, not all of the ice-free areas in Antarctica are exactly the same. For example, the area that uh, I've been working in over the last few years, an area called the Bestfold Hills, its nickname is the Riviera of the South. It can get quite warm in summer, I think even up to 10 degrees Celsius, quite balmy. There's lots of lakes around it's coastal so it's reasonably can be quite humid compared to elsewhere but on the other side of Antarctica there's an area called the McMurdo Dry Valleys and it's an incredibly ancient landscape it's there's areas there that have no recorded precipitation no snow no ice nothing and 
this landscape's been exposed for millions of years and footprints there that scientists recorded in, I think, the 1980s, they can still see evidence of campsites that were set up uh, and walking tracks that were set up many, many, many years ago. Okay, so we're really talking about a landscape that, like, it might recover, but it's seriously going to take some time. Yeah, that's right. And like I was saying, not everywhere is exactly the same. And so by understanding how different parts of that landscape formed, was really ancient landscape versus some of these newer ones that were maybe only covered by ice a few thousand years ago. Something that I do a lot of is breaking down the landscape into its different components, areas that have really thick glacial tills, glacial sediments that have been left behind, um, more recent marine sediments and fossil shells and things like that that have been left behind. They all have different ways that they'll be impacted if we start taking walking tracks through them and they'll be have different rates of recovery as well. And so part of my job is to pick that apart and provide information uh, to help people make decisions about perhaps where we go and where we don't go. I've also heard that with the warming in Antarctica, there's a, a rising concern about weeds. Is that something that you'd be sort of like, well, I guess any any plant's probably going to have a weed in Antarctica, but is that something that you're looking at because you're looking at where the weeds could grow, I guess? Yeah, it's a huge concern um, in a lot of Antarctica. There are a whole host of changes that we expect to occur with a warming climate and also changes that we don't even fully understand yet. Certainly, we're expecting uh, weeds to be able to colonise more freely um, because the environment will become potentially more hospitable to them, to invasive species uh, or invasive aliens, um, as they're sometimes called. Ice-free areas at the moment, they're quite patchy, but if you're starting to melt ice away, they potentially become more connected. And so it's easier for species to transfer between them. You know, we'll have exposure of land that's been covered by ice for thousands or even hundreds of thousands of years. And we don't fully appreciate or we don't fully understand yet what those impacts are going to look like. And I think what's so important about the work that we're doing in Antarctica now is understanding the past history of these areas, what's happening there now, and that really can help us predict what we could expect under a warming climate as well and help prepare for that. It makes a lot of sense. Like you, you need to know what your baseline is before and, and what's happened in the past before you can work out like what's going to happen in the future and also whether or not that's good or bad really too. Exactly. We can't, we can't measure anything without a yardstick. And so we need to understand what's happening there, there now. Also to be able to detect change in the first place, there's areas that we don't really know a lot about. And if we go in um, to you know, some of these areas in maybe 20 or 30 years and revisit after a really long time, it, it can be hard to say whether that change is natural, whether it's climate change induced, whether it's from people. There's a whole whole range of factors that we don't fully understand yet. So it sounds like a really interesting sort of like long-term detective job to be doing where you're looking at what's happened ages and ages ago, what's happening now, and then, yeah, doing that kind of cool prediction into the future. Yeah, it's really cool. It's like a giant jigsaw puzzle that just keeps growing because you find more and more connections. Okay, so it's a, it's a kind of jigsaw puzzle where you haven't got the edges, so you can't just like work inward. <laughs> you get to keep growing your jigsaw. Exactly, and you have no box to follow either, so you don't know what the final thing's going to look like. Okay, so it's sounding, it's sounding like a big puzzle to be trying to solve. 
it is a big puzzle and it's something that I didn't appreciate about Antarctic science when I first got into it, but it's truly one of the things I love about it is that the challenges facing Antarctica as a continent and the Southern Ocean around it as well. There's not one single discipline or scientific discipline or even research group that can fully understand everything or one nation that can understand everything. So it's super collaborative. It's super interdisciplinary. People working together and borrowing ideas from each other all the time. Uh, and it's, which also means as a scientist, you're always learning about new things and new, new areas and new ideas. Uh, and it's really exciting to be a part of that. Plus you get to go to Antarctica. Yeah, that bit's pretty rad. I'm not going to lie. Can you talk a little bit about the area that you are researching? Like what are, what are its characteristics? So the area I've been working on over the past few years is called the Vestfold Hills. It's a little rocky island, about 400 square kilometres in size. So I think that makes it, I think, maybe 15, 20 times the size of the Sydney CBD. Uh, it's on the coast of East Antarctica, and that's about a two-week ship voyage from Hobart. This area is, look, to be honest, at first, it looks pretty boring. It's a lot of brown rocks, a lot of black rocks, a lot of dirt and gravel and boulders. But it's pretty amazing. So we we have Davis Station there, one of Australia's research stations. Its backyard is just this Martian-looking landscape. The hard rocks that uh, form the hills of this area are incredibly ancient. They're billions of years old, This really, these really ancient continental rocks. And then on top of that, once they were brought to the surface, the land's been shaped by ice grinding over the top and eroding it and shaping it as well. And so you have this big gap in the geological record between these rocks that are billions of years old and then these sediments left behind by ancient oceans and ancient ice sheets as well, uh, just draping over the top, forming this, this layer of um, sediment and boulders and gravel sitting over the top. Right. So it, it, it sounds like it might look fairly dry or dry, dry, boring, but once you actually understand what the landscape like is the story that it's telling, then it would get quite interesting. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I love about geology and the kind of work that I do is it it helps you understand the story of different landscapes and, and see them in a different way. This landscape to fly over in a helicopter is is kind of interesting in some ways. It's these brown rocks cut by these really thick black lines. They're dikes, so this granitic brown rock formed first and then it was intruded um, at great depth by magma um, of a different sort of chemical composition and so it creates this contrast um, with these dikes that have come through. And then, as I said, you've got this sediment lying over the top of it that at first, yeah, it looks a bit, maybe a bit drab, but when you realise that it's a record of past ice sheet expansion and contraction, it's got a record of past ocean and, and sea level rise. Um, it's it's really quite remarkable. I've been studying it for a few years now and I feel like I know it like the back of my hand. And it's really interesting and, and good fun to be able to pick that apart and, and find new details and communicate that with others as well. One of the things that always sort of like stands out to me about geology is like when you look at a mountain, it looks kind of steady and it's just hanging there. It's not up to too much. But it, when we talk about intrusion and like some of the words that are used are quite sort of dramatic and it sort of feels like if we sped up geology, we'd see it as this like it would be incredibly intense and often quite violent and like brutal. Like there's a lot 
lot of grinding and wearing away and cracking open and all sorts of it's incredibly dynamic it's just too slow for us to sort of appreciate yeah for sure it's it is really dramatic it can be really violent something that I love about this landscape as well is how dramatic and strong ice can be so on these hilltops I think the highest hill is about 150 160 meters above sea level and you have boulders there almost the size of houses they tower over me and there's no other way that they could have got there other than ice. The rock that those boulders are made of is not local. And yet ice has plucked it from somewhere else and then dragged it across the landscape and then dumped it on top of these hills and huge volumes of sediment, hundreds and hundreds of cubic metres of sediment um, that's been left behind. It's a remarkable planet. Uh, that we live on very very powerful and I think that's easy super easy to forget but possibly the the closest most of us would get to is if you pop something in the freezer that maybe you shouldn't so you know a a can of a can of a fizzy liquid (laughs) or eggs also do this as well and you're you're like oh cold things that's it'll be it'll be fine and there's just this point at which it just goes crack I remember many an exploded drink bottle as a child that got left in the freezer too full. Exactly. And it's sort of like, it's that, but on a continental scale, like it's serious. Yeah, for sure. Anyhow, very sidetrack. Sorry. You're probably here to talk about like serious things, not um, exploding water bottles. <laughs> what What does an average day at work look like for you? Because it's got to be interesting. So I have two pretty distinctive work days. So I have most of the year I'm in the office or this year working from home a fair bit. Um, And then I have field work as well. And office work is sitting in front of a couple of monitors, maybe looking at some data that's come back from the lab, recording my observations and putting my interpretations into mapping software to sort of consolidate things that I've seen in the field meetings, chatting with colleagues, collaborators, lots of emails, things like that. Probably no surprises there. Um, Writing presentations, things like that. Fieldwork is really interesting. And so a typical day of fieldwork would be get up in the morning, go and grab some breakfast, and then head to a planning meeting for the day. And that's where people coordinating operations around the station, helicopter pilots, weather forecasters, Um, and other people all meet up to plan operations for the day. And as as the lead on the project, I would have said, right, this is where we want to go. This is what we need in terms of helicopter flights, things like that. And then we'll get the confirmation, yep, you're good to go. After that, we'll go and make sure our bags are packed for the day, get some lunch in, make sure that my lunch is at the back of my pack near my body because I've had one too many frozen sandwiches Um, in the field (laughs) to learn that lesson pretty quickly, make a big thermos of uh, tea to take out with me and keep me warm, and then helicopter flight out uh, of station to drop us at a field site at around about 9 o'clock in the morning, talk to the helicopter pilots, tell them where we need to to go, find a suitable landing spot. Once we land, we'll do a radio check back with station to make sure that we're connected. Um, And then it's just it's me and my field partner for the day doing what we need to do. So we'll have maps printed out and have a good idea of where we want to get to and things that we want to check along the way. 
that could be anything from looking at our satellite imagery and saying, hmm, I'm not quite sure what that feature looks like on the ground. Let's go check it out. And also saying, yep, we want to get some samples from these locations because we don't have samples like that yet. We'll find a nice spot for morning tea and lunch, usually with a pretty good view, maybe of a glacier or the ice sheet, which is pretty great. And then towards the end of the day, towards dinner time, we'll radio in with our location. Helicopter comes along and picks us up, does the afternoon school run. And then we're back on station, pack our gear away, put samples into storage, grab some dinner, have a quick shower. Um, and then it's catching up on emails, um, everything that I've missed during the day, getting planning ready for the next day and for the following week as well, checking what's changed and if there's changes in plans that we need to fit in with. And then head to bed for some sleep because uh, we're walking anywhere from 8 to 15 k's a day, so it's pretty tiring. And then get up and do it all over again for about five or six weeks. So you literally get picked up by a helicopter and dropped in the middle of some sort of Antarctic wilderness to go for a wander and pick up rocks. Yeah, it's actually the best job ever. And I never take it for granted. <laughs> I can tell you that. Something that's um, something that'll never get old is the fact that, yeah, we just have helicopters to support us because we can't drive over this landscape. It's uh, too rugged, too remote in some cases. And also, like I was saying, we can cause quite a lot of damage by doing that. In other fieldwork that I've done, done lots of fieldwork through Australia and you're either for driving to locations or you have to get back to your motel at the end of the day or set up camp and it can be that you know that slog at the end of the day can be really long whereas in Antarctica we literally just call up and say yep these are our locations can you come and pick us up it's pretty great. Yeah you really don't need to think about that commute home at all. Yeah exactly. So I've, I've had a lot of people on the podcast who would describe their job as being the best job ever. I have to say like yours is up there. I, I don't know I don't know if we need to have <laughs> I, I think it is. <laughs> I don't know if we need to have a competition, but yeah, no, it's definitely up there. How do you actually get to Antarctica? Because it's, it's not like you can just book a flight with Qantas. No, although it's funny you say that because actually this year um, I was at Casey Station when Qantas did a tourist flyover. Um, and so that's a, that's a round trip that I think was leaving from Melbourne. They take a 747. They do a flyover Antarctica and different features and I remember standing out the front of the station waving at this 747 flying over. And at that point, we'd been waiting about three weeks for the ice runway to cool enough so that we could get so that they could get a plane in and we could get home. And it just, just felt like we were zoo animals waving at this plane. They couldn't even land to take us home. But anyway. That's weird. I don't yep. Yeah, it was a very strange experience. Quite surreal. In terms of getting to Antarctica. So I've spent two summers down there now and I uh, took different routes both ways. So the first time I went down was on the Aurora Australis icebreaker from Hobart. That was about a two-week voyage one way and that was incredible because we left Hobart and there was this real sense of going somewhere. You could see the ocean change and then the ice start to appear and then we started breaking through the ice and that's just a sound and experience I'll never forget the sound of sea ice scraping on steel um, as we just head-butted our way and broke through the ice was really just the experience of a lifetime. This summer, this past summer that I went down, uh, we flew from Hobart, and that's about a four-and-a-half-hour flight, to Wilkins Aerodrome, which is Australia's blue ice runway near Casey Station. And then we sat tight at Casey, I think, for about a week to wait for a weather window, and then we could get on a smaller aircraft, a Basler, 
small turboprop um, and then that took us over to Davis. So there's a few ways to get to Antarctica. Um, I wouldn't say it's quick, uh, but it's certainly worth it and it's a real adventure. Well, it sounds like the adventure ha- like starts before you even get there, which is cool. Yeah, absolutely. And there's this real anticipation as you're getting ready to go. And in fact, last year that was even cut short because the ice temperatures were rising at Wilkins. And so we had pretty short notice to get our bags packed and we ended up leaving a week earlier than planned, uh, which threw a lot of our plans into disarray. But, you know, we managed and when you don't have a choice in the matter, you just make it work. So the plane is actually landing on the ice. That's right. It's landing on the ice. It's a beautifully groomed ice runway. There's a team dedicated uh, to preparing and maintaining it. So I flew down in an A319, just a regular passenger jet. Uh, The interior has been modified a little bit, but, you know, something that Jetstar might run. On the way back, we came back in an Air Force C-17, which was pretty amazing, uh, very noisy. Wouldn't say it was the most comfortable plane to sit in, uh, but it was a really neat experience. Yeah, I I don't think they're um, set up for passenger comfort per se. No, but they certainly made us feel very welcome. And after waiting... I think it was over three weeks at that point uh, to come home. Uh, Yeah, it was certainly a welcome sight to see it land and come in to pick us up. What are the skills that you feel like you need to be able to do your job? Because there's a lot going on. That's a lot of skills that you need. Yeah, there is a lot going on, I guess. Obviously, I studied geology. And so a lot of the skills I learned during my science degree, I draw on all the time critical thinking, being able to read and interpret landscapes and put all of those jigsaw pieces together in a geological way. I guess skills that perhaps you might not think of that I draw on all the time are things like being able to write and communicate and construct an argument. And those are skills I learned back in high school. I had some fantastic teachers in high school that really taught us how to write um, and how to express ourselves. I remember In Year 12 history, we had this absolute gun of a teacher, Mr. Blasio, who was so passionate and such a great history teacher. We were learning about the rise of Hitler and the Iranian Revolution and the Russian Revolution. And for the end of year exams, she would drill us and we'd have all these practice exams and had it down to such a, a fine art that you would get almost any question and you'd know the material so well that you could plan out a seven page essay in a few minutes and then just start writing because you knew how to introduce your concepts, you'd have your topic sentence, you'd cover one idea per paragraph and then you'd move on to the next one and they'd gradually build together and then you'd have your conclusion at the end. I also had a really fantastic uh, but terrifying drama teacher. Part of our drama course was reviewing performances we'd seen and he was, he had a real bee in his bonnet about precision of language and it was things like the word, the words like fantastic comes from fantasy and fabulous is related to fables and great really means huge and, and large in scale. And so you had to be incredibly thoughtful with the words that you used to be able to express your ideas and things like that, getting that ingrained uh, really, I don't want to say beaten into me, but encouraged into me from an early age, I think really, really helps as a scientist, because science isn't particularly useful unless it's communicated to people who need it. Some other skills that I think that you might need in this sort of role are things, again, that you're not really taught at university, but it's all the stuff that you pick up along the way. It's 
being resilient, patient. I wouldn't say I'm a terribly patient person, but I've learned more patience over the years. I think being self-aware and self-reflective, coming out of a situation and going, oh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't cope real well with that. What can I do better next time to achieve a better outcome and to make sure that people are feeling you know, good at the end of that? And a real willingness to give things a go. Um, some of the, you know, some of the best experiences have been things like getting my drone license last year because someone said, hey, this might be useful. And then I looked into it and went, yeah, actually, that could be a real game changer for us. Let's do it. Remote and wilderness first aid, just diving in, giving it a go, um, working as hard as you can, all those sorts of things. They're skills that you pick up along the way. No one sort of gives you a handbook of this is what you need to know. But being able to make the most of every situation, yeah, going in, giving things a go and having a, I think generally a positive attitude really helps. They're all fantastic skills, like in everything, not not just in science, but I, I want to give you a massive, massive high five for um, pointing out the value of what you learned in high school, particularly through the arts, because so often it's just like, we just say, oh, scientists need to be able to communicate, but it's not explicitly taught. And the point at which it's taught explicitly and critical thinking, all that sort of stuff is in English and history and largely at high school. Yeah, for sure. I think they're so valuable. And I think sometimes when they can be taught later on, it's in the context of, oh, scientists are poor communicators. We're going to teach you how to communicate good and kind of forcing it. Mm. Um, I think doing communication almost by stealth where people don't realise they're being taught to communicate well and form cogent arguments I think is really powerful because it just becomes something that you do by default rather than a conscious exercise and I think that's really important. Cannot, yeah, I'm trying to work out what I need to say. It's like, (laughs) it's just, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I think... Also, being able to put together a good argument is so important and we sort of like we tend to skim over that part of science but that you're actually arguing for your evidence and your point of view is really important. Absolutely. And it's at all stages of science. It's from the planning stage or applying for a grant or, in my case, convincing someone that there's a gap in knowledge, there's a problem that needs to be addressed and that we have potentially a solution to that. And then it's as you're working through the science and quote unquote doing the science, it's talking to people that you need help from, you know, that real team effort. And then once you've done the science, it's right, what do we do with these results? What do we do with this information? How do we make it useful to people? Um, it's, you know, from beginning to end, uh, really important. How have you ended up with this ridiculously awesome job? What, what was your path from high school to here? What did you do? Tell us your secrets. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I wish I had really good secrets and like the top five things that Antarctic geoscientists don't want you to know about how to become an Antarctic geoscientist. But (laughs) (laughs) I don't think, if there are those secrets, I I don't know them. I guess in short, a little bit by accident, a little bit by design and really by keeping my options open but having a good eye for good opportunities when they present themselves and following things up and taking the initiative to follow things up so as a I was I've always been interested in science and I've tried to pick you know was there a moment as a child when I just 
was like, yeah, I'm going to be a scientist. Um, I asked my mum a while ago, I said, oh, was it ever time when I wasn't going to be a scientist? And she's like, oh, for a while you wanted to have a lemonade stand, but that didn't really last very long. So my parents were trained as teachers. My dad did agricultural science and then later became a photographer and my mum was a teacher librarian. So I, I grew up around teachers and books and, and knowledge. And I think that's just something that's fostered my love of science from the day dot. But as a teenager, I started to really get interested in genetics and medical science. And I remember that was kind of spurred through Cyro's Double Helix Club. They put out like a magazine. I don't know if they still do it, um, but they used to put out this awesome magazine with popular science articles for kids. And I just started to find that sort of thing fascinating. Really loved biology, medical sort of science um, growing up and I went to the National Youth Science Forum uh, as I headed into year 12 in 2006, along with you. And at that stage, yeah, I was just hell-bent on really, I think at that stage it was sort of infectious diseases, which is very 2020. I was quite ahead of my time. And, yeah, kind of immunology and medical science. And the National Youth Science Forum, it was amazing for a couple of reasons. It it was really where I found my people, a bunch of really, you know, vibrant science nerds, which I didn't have a lot of exposure to at school. Um, so that was awesome. And then it really solidified and crystallised for me a pathway into that medical science. So I came out of NYSF and went, great, I'm going to go to University of Melbourne to study immunology and virology. I was in, I grew up in Adelaide and I just, like everyone at 16, wanted to get out of Adelaide. So I was like, yep, go to the big smoke, go to Melbourne. Yep, and then I'm going to do that and I'll do my PhD and then I'm going to go and do research at the John Curtin Medical School at the ANU. And pretty much from the get-go, that all fell apart. So <laughs> my dad got really sick uh, when I was in year 10 and by the time Choices for Uni came around, I decided to stay with family in Adelaide, which ended up being a really good decision. And I took up geology just by accident. I needed a filler subject in first year. I had some friends doing it. I couldn't face another semester of physics. I was like, I just need something else to fill these units. My friends were like, come and do geology. Like we study volcanoes, we do field trips. Like it's just fun. It's kind of neat. So I sort of went, yeah, sure. All right, let's give that a crack. And it was cool. I enjoyed it, but I didn't, it didn't grab me. And I think at that point, you know, something that you do a lot of in first year is, you learn about volcanoes and, the, you know, from a fairly introductory standpoint, you learn how to identify rocks and minerals. And that's kind of cool, but you're sort of like left kind of going, so what? Like I can identify feldspar. I can say, yeah, cool, that's a chunk of pyroxene, but it doesn't really mean anything. And then going into second year, I was still, you know, going down that medical science pathway and I got to some of the early lectures and just no one wanted to be there. You know, even the lecturers and, and some of the students just got this really kind of depressed vibe. I don't know, maybe it was just a bad week. I don't know. But by that stage, my dad had passed away and I didn't appreciate it at the time. But being around friends and really good people and a real sense of community um, was super important. And it's only looking back now that I recognise that. But I went to one of the intro geology lectures. I hadn't even enrolled in the course, but I think 
we were probably just going to the pub afterwards or something. So I just went along with my mates. And afterwards, one of the lecturers emailed me and they said, oh, noticed you're in the prelim lecture, but you weren't enrolled in the course. If you're just there to say hi or, you know, take a look, no dramas. But if you're having second thoughts and you've got questions, let me know. I'm happy to have a chat. You know, this is just to a, you know, basically a first year or second year student. And I thought, far out, like that's pretty, that's pretty awesome. And so it was kind of, yeah, just a few little things like that. And so I ended up taking on some more geology courses and then having a few aha moments on field trips where you could look at that mineral that you had identified and suddenly more of the picture, more of the puzzle became apparent. You could look at that chunk of quartz and go, oh, actually, that's a vein, you know, that's fractured through another, you know, larger rock that, you know, shows hot quartz-rich, silica-rich fluids having flowed through there millions of years ago. And the reason that it's now a pebble on the ground is because it's formed this really resistant part of the landscape that's sticking up out of the ground while everything else is eroded away. And you can start, it's like getting this secret treasure map to the world, this secret map of interpreting the landscape and the, and the planet. And the rest, yeah, after that, I just took on more and more subjects did all the geology, geophysics, environmental geoscience I could, and then landed, sorry, no, there was a PhD in between. (laughs) (laughs) Forgot that bit. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That old chestnut. I really loved research. I just, I, I like having a big problem to kind of chip away at, being able to go down rabbit holes, things like that. So I did a PhD um, at the University of Adelaide, which was working in the Western Murray Basin through the Murray Mallee, which was just fabulous, uh, really amazing landscape and um, communities out there. And then after my PhD, I was wondering what to do and started to come across Geoscience Australia in Canberra, part of the Commonwealth Government as an option, and so applied for the grad program and, and got in. When I was in the grad program, I remember it was just at morning tea one day, someone said, it was one of the previous grads, and he said, oh, I tried to tried to set up a grad project, just these four-month projects that we were doing, tried to set up a grad project with the Antarctic Geoscience team, but things just didn't quite quite line up and it, and it fell through. But if you're looking for a project, maybe I can pull that paperwork out and see if it interests you, you know, see what you think and maybe get it off the ground. And I was like, yeah, absolutely, send it through. And so I followed up on that. That turned into a, a four-month project in my graduate year. And I thought, gee, that's cool. That's my little taste of Antarctic science. That's it. But it was during that time that Chris, who was managing the team at the time, said, what are you doing next year? You know, what are your, what are your plans for your permanent role? And I said, oh, probably the minerals team. That's um, very much where my background sits in um, mineral exploration. And he's like, oh, would you think of joining our team? Because you've got a set of skills that we don't really have. You know, there could be you know, something for you to work on here. And I went, yes, let's make that happen. So we did, we made the case for it and I managed to get a permanent role in in my current team and yeah, the rest is history, I guess, <laughs> five years on and I'm still loving it. That That's such a fantastic story and I'm, I'm sitting here trying to be like, how would I do like that article of the, the 10 things that Antarctic geoscientists, like their secrets. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like it's just sort of like, like obviously you had a passion in high school and you sort of followed that to, I guess, its extent. And 
then we're open to trying new things and open to exploring new things. And it's sort of that openness and chatting to people that have led you to awesome job exhibit A. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. I think it's a combination of, yeah, really having a focus and wanting to do, to follow a particular path. I think having goals is really important. And certainly when I was going down that medical science route, I really did have a goal in mind. And I think that was really important for helping shape choices and being able to say, no, I won't pursue that. Or yes, I think this is the sensible option. But I think that openness as well means that when things aren't quite right, I wasn't so wedded to the idea or this dream or this unrealistic ideal of what being a medical scientist was going to be like, that I couldn't try something else um, when the time was right. So important. So what is the most exciting part of your job now? Like you've had a pretty adventurous journey so far, but what's the bit that really, really gets you excited when you wake up in the morning now? Yeah, because I don't have any fieldwork coming up. And so fieldwork's really fun because there's the anticipation of it and having about 18 balls in the air and juggling them all at once. And that's probably one of my happiest, (laughs) like having a lot of things on, on the go. At the moment, though, it's really satisfying to see this body of work that I've been working on for a few years now really starting to come together. So I had two seasons of field work because we wanted to get data across two seasons to be able to compare it over time. And so it's seeing that come together, sometimes in unexpected ways, sometimes in disappointing ways of, oh, that wasn't quite as clear cut as I'd hoped and doesn't quite answer the question as clearly as I'd hoped. But seeing that come together in a way then that I think, yeah, actually, this could be quite useful, not only for decision makers to say, hey, you know, look, I think we can make some recommendations here around, you know, what we think about walking tracks or entering really sensitive areas, but also saying, cool, now, if we want to take this further, and expand it or build on it or learn more lessons uh, and collaborate with other countries to make this, you know, a stronger sort of system across Antarctica, here's how we can do it. And that's really satisfying as well, especially coming in fresh from a PhD where you're still very junior, you're still finding your feet to feel like a little bit more now, think, oh yeah, maybe maybe I can make a difference and maybe I'm not quite as baby and junior and insignificant as I felt five years ago so that's kind of neat that's awesome and you're definitely not baby and insignificant (laughs) at all (laughs) is there is there any advice that you would like to give to whether it's young staff or just anyone who's considering you know who's listening and they're like I want to be a geologist in Antarctica (laughs) (laughs) I have one piece of advice and one other thing I don't know what to call it my big piece of advice would be to take the initiative and follow up on things if you think if you hear of someone doing interesting work or you maybe come across an interesting paper don't be afraid to follow it up Um, sometimes you might get silence in return if someone's just really busy or it slips through the cracks but you'll be amazed to find how obliging, how friendly, how passionate scientists are. We love talking about our work. We really do. Uh, It's the reason we do it every day. It's the reason that we dedicate our whole careers to it. 
and especially people who also share a passion and interest. Sometimes you're communicating your work to people who don't really care and that's, you know, a Sisyphean task. But if someone comes along, uni, uni students or high, high school students, and they say, hey, I'm really interested in your work, can we have a chat? It's just the best. Um, and it's really fun. They make you think about, you know, people ask me questions that make me think about my work differently. And that's really cool because I learn from it. So if you have an interest, don't be afraid to, you know, flick around some emails, make some phone calls, you know, see who you can get engaged with uh, and really take the initiative there. The other thing I would say to people who are interested in this field is you do not need to do field work to make a significant contribution to Antarctic science or science in general. I think there's a really big perception with Antarctic scientists and also with the general public and in earth science, you know, geology, that if you don't do field work, you're not a proper scientist. And it's just completely untrue, especially these days. I think it's a really harmful, really damaging stereotype. Some of the most prominent Antarctic scientists, you know, creating climate models and really setting the agenda for climate policy action in the world have never set foot on the ice. Or they're now in roles where they no longer need to do field work. Not everyone can do field work for a whole host of reasons. That doesn't mean you can't make a really significant contribution to science generally. And I think that's really important for people to understand. It is one of those genuinely I guess, kind of like unicorn jobs where you can actually do it all from your computer app. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's not just by sort of virtually going in the field as well, you know, looking at things on a computer screen. There's huge repositories of samples, um, of cores and ways to access Antarctica and other field areas, even in Australia more generally, without having to go there, without having to climb up a rock face or leave the family at home and, and all these sorts of things. So I think the more widely we can get that accepted and recognised, the better because it makes it a more inclusive discipline and that means we get better outcomes as well. Well, yeah, it means we're, we're not kind of like putting up, yeah, we're not, we're not putting up ridiculous barriers that don't actually exist to stop people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think that's really important. I think science and field sciences have a long way to come uh, with diversity, with gender equity, with inclusion. Uh, and I think normalizing uh, and recognizing that field work is not the mark of a true scientist um, is a really important, it's a really important barrier uh, to break down. Yeah, we don't live back in the days of, oh, I can't remember, is it Scott? The Who are the Scott and Shackleton and Mawson. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> Those days are long gone, for sure. Thank goodness, because a lot of people died. Oh, a lot of dogs died, everything died. Yeah, <laughs> it was really hard graft. And the diet, not good, not good. I think that's a, I'd love everyone listening to take that away. Like, I think that's really valuable. Is there anything else that you would like the general public is there any myths out there that you would like to squash whether it's about science or field work or antarctica like is there myths we need to do some squashing of? not what to do with antarctica but with geology and geoscience i think there's a a perception among students and the general public that studying geology is all about resources 
And it was certainly a stereotype I battled when I was studying. So I went through the Uni of Adelaide and South Australia has a huge resources industry. It's a big part of our economy, oil and gas uh, and minerals as well. And a lot of the research uh, of the university went towards those areas and a lot of graduates as well uh, went into those fields. I didn't really have an interest in the resources industry when I was studying, mostly for lifestyle reasons, the idea of flying in, flying out, having two lives, working in, you know, 50 degree heat in a tin shed just didn't really appeal to me a whole lot. And it was kind of hard for a while because I knew I loved geology and all the things that helped me understand, but I couldn't quite see what I was going to do with it. And so for a while, it was really sticking with it because I just figured, well, if I love it, like I'll make something of it. it, it'll work out. And then fortunately came across places like Geoscience Australia, where you're applying geology, geoscience, earth science to a whole host of different, different challenges. But when I was studying, that was a bit difficult to see at the time because I didn't have a lot of exposure to that. But yeah, I think, I think geology is a lot more than those sectors. In saying that, though, those industries need a lot of really clever, passionate people in there to address issues of sustainability. You know, in shifting to greener technologies, we need more mineral resources than we've ever mined before, and they have to come from somewhere. A wind turbine has something like 400 kilos of rare earth elements in it, in a single turbine. So recycling an old iPhone isn't quite going to get us there. The copper that's needed to you know, create new power cables and things like that to shift this energy around, around Australia and the world, those, and that's those resources are needed in volumes we haven't extracted in human history. And so we need people who are passionate about the environment, who have that geological background to help solve some of those, to help solve some of those issues, to make things cleaner, greener along the whole chain. If people can take that away, that'd be fantastic. But no, it was really that fieldwork piece that I that I wanted to get across because I think, yeah, I remember when I first started this role I had to propose this multi-year project and and what we were going to do and that was competing against universities and other scientists for not funding but logistics um, and time in Antarctica and it took quite a while but eventually it got up and so that was great and then we were sort of in the pool in the mix for getting basically births beds on station um, helicopter support time in the field so we were aiming to do the first field season in 2017, 2018 uh, field season and over summer. And I remember getting prepared for that because we have to start planning many months in advance, getting equipment, things like that ready. And then I got this email one afternoon because we hadn't got the go ahead. We hadn't got the green light yet, but had to plan as though it was happening because otherwise time was going to run out. I remember getting this email one afternoon and it said, we're very sorry, but we can't fit you in this summer, maybe next summer. And I just went, oh, no. <laughs> I just, I, I remember reading it a couple of times to sort of fully understand what was being said. And then I went and found a spare room at work and just, I think, dissolved into a puddle and just cried, like ugly cried. I don't know how long (laughs) it was uh it was really just it wasn't that I 
missed out on a trip to Antarctica, although, you know, that was going to be amazing. It was at that point, it was 18 months of work, two years of work to get to that point, building the case for this project, you know, planning it out, getting the collaborations right. And as a young scientist, you know, I was not long out of uni, you need to be producing, you need to be publishing and getting stuff done. And really couldn't do that without fieldwork to get samples, to get data. And it was just this, this realisation of, oh, my goodness, I'm going to have to wait at least another year before that can happen. So that's putting everything back and I'm watching the time tick away as what I thought was a fairly unproductive young scientist and, and just going, oh, my goodness, like what does this mean? Is I had, a, I had questions of will GA support me to continue in that role or could they say you know they could have quite easily have said actually you know we gave it a good shot but it didn't work out this time we need you to be working on something else that could have happened so it was it was all of this just crashed down all at once and yeah months of anxiety and and frustration all all coming out and so that was yeah that was a pretty low point that was pretty rubbish that wasn't it wasn't the best job in the world that day that's for sure no but I think those those moments are really important to talk about too, not just like the highlights of, you know, having a, a sandwich and tea looking over a glacier, but also that there are those moments of being completely crushed mm-hmm. that you have to overcome and you have to work through and, yeah, you have to keep trying. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I very nearly walked away though. I I sort of went, oh, this could go either way because I could wait another year, lose, you know, a year of where I could be, you know, doing research that was going to lead to other outcomes and and still not get anywhere. But I stuck with it because at the time I thought there's enough of a chance that we could still pull this off. And fortunately, fortunately it happened. But I'd also mapped out in my mind, right, if it doesn't happen the second time, it's time to cut and run, do something else. Um, that's going to, you know, perhaps have a bit more certainty to it. Gave it a good shot, but, you know, also be okay walking away from that at this point. But yeah, you know, coming back from that, you know, I think I, I think I dusted myself off, tried to pull myself together, went and talked to my manager and and tell him what was what had happened. And I think I say I pulled myself together. I was probably still a bit <laughs> at that time. And then yeah, came in the next day and went right. What next? Let's let's rewrite the next year of my work plan that's just gone out the window and, and get going. Also, when it did happen, gee, I appreciated it so much more. Yeah, I think, you know, I always was going to count myself lucky for having those sorts of experiences um, and the, the privilege of working in Antarctica. But um, having that setback, I was better prepared for it. I was a year more mature, a year more invested in getting it right and making it work. I think it's it's possible that people listening don't have any idea of how hard it is to get a berth to go to Antarctica, how few people get to go down there as to do research. Like you can pay whatever it is, 20 grand to go on a boat and um, go on a holiday. Yeah. The the only barrier is money, but if you actually want to do stuff down there, that's hard. Yeah, and... As well, you know, the summer population at the stations, the Australian stations over summer, you know, swells a lot compared to winter. 
you know, Casey Davis, there's almost 100 people there, but you're probably only looking at one in five that are actually scientists, depending on the year. It's a lot of a lot of power, a lot of people power to keep the stations going, to mechanics and carpenters and plumbers to keep the buildings going, keep the taps on, the heating on, maintain the vehicles which are getting punished in you know really harsh conditions, helicopter pilots, chefs, communications um, experts, with a lot of people to actually make make the science happen, make Antarctica happen. And so as a as a scientist, you just feel so incredibly fortunate. And it's just mind-blowing to see that machine in action. It's just so impressive. You're so self-sufficient down there. The expeditioners that you're with, your instant family, they are the fire department, they are the surgical team. There's a train, there's a doctor on station, but they're assisted by uh, maybe a carpenter, a diesel mechanic, um, a plumber who've spent a couple of weeks at the Royal Hobart Hospital learning surgical skills and they could be stitching you back together if you if you come a cropper so it's impressive to see it in action and yeah really awesome to be a part of it. I'm starting to think we need to do an episode just about how stations work in Antarctica because oh yeah it's it is fascinating and it's it's stuff that you you wouldn't even expect and real characters as well yeah really awesome people who've not just Antarctica but have had often the most amazing lives and worked in some really incredible locations. Well, we'll have to catch up about that one. Yeah. Have you got someone or something or a group of someones who you would like everyone who is listening to give virtual high fives to? Someone who's just awesome, deserves high fives. Uh, definitely virtual high fives and all the props to the Deadly Science crew and Corey Tut, who established it. Get on Google, get on Twitter and, and see what they're doing. Corey established this a few years ago to bring books and resources, uh, particularly around science, to Indigenous remote schools. Sometimes, you know, they only had a few books between dozens of pupils. And my goodness, what he's achieved, sending telescopes and piles of books and resources and getting scientists into schools and getting great traction in the media to really build up awareness and enthusiasm around this sort of cause. Um, It's just next level uh, and really awesome to see so yeah um, big high fives to deadly science and Corey. massive high fives we've got to see if we can get him on the show actually yeah i think that'd be awesome be so cool and he like he just missed out on one of the is it national science awards i forget what they were called oh the eureka yeah nominated and like just missed out i was like oh <laughs> i think he was um new south wales young australian of the year recently as well yeah he's doing all the things right now like uh so good yeah yeah it's good to not just that he's doing it but seeing him get recognized for it um and people really jumping on board I think that's really cool yeah yeah so we will obviously include links to deadly science in the show notes and there's definitely ways that you as listeners can get involved because obviously books I was about to say books don't grow on trees they don't grow on trees as books Wow. Good job. You can contribute books is what I'm trying to say. Anyhow, and with that, I would like to say thank you so much, Dr. Steph. It has been an absolute pleasure, incredibly educational, and keep up the amazing work in keeping Antarctica safe. Thanks so much for having me. It's been really fun. 
Thanks so much for tuning in this year. If you like this podcast, you should head to avidresearch.com.au where you can sign up to our email newsletter. You can also now sign up to our Patreon, which means that if you so choose, you can financially support Avid Research. And I have a massive shout out to our very first Patreon, David Lee, who is a fantastic human being as a result of being a Patreon, he now gets to ask questions, he gets behind the scenes footage and behind the scenes chats, and he also gets his name shouted out at the end of every podcast. So thanks so much, David. And if you want to be number two, you should head to avidresearch.com.au and click support us on Patreon. That'd be fantastic. 